It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. I want to know if you are one of the lucky ones who have the ability to work from home. If you do, you may be part of a radical change in real estate that nobody ever could have predicted. There's a lot of debate about what it's going to mean for housing prices overall in the United States. I'm going to give you my guess. And something new again, you know how something old becomes new again? All the questions I'm getting about CD ladders, what is a CD ladder? Is a CD ladder right for you when talk it through? Okay, so when COVID really got going back in 20 and the whole concept of remote work took off for the roughly third of Americans who can do their work from wherever versus having to physically be wherever they're doing their work. And third is kind of like a rough estimate. I know it could be a little, wouldn't be less. It could be a little more than that. There was a lot of upset in a lot of areas further from metros or even rural areas that home prices were becoming unaffordable in areas where housing prices had been extremely inexpensive. And this has been a case in many, many communities around the country, and the stories have only been reported from a negative perspective. Yes, it may have been a hardship on people who lived in a community, and all these outsiders come in, and the demand pushes up prices. Also led to new construction, new employment activity, and actually the intermediate term effect not the short term effect from 20 and 21 but you look longer out and this is ultimately an economic revitalization for retail in areas that maybe had slowed down economically for housing construction there are a lot of activities that will actually benefit from this new way of people living who can live completely remotely and still work and the tax base and local communities that may have suffered as the economy was not maybe as strong as it once was in areas the tax base will rise as well so there you know the reporting originally and for an extended period of time has only been negative in the effects on rural areas that have seen the influx of these people that can work remotely and choose to live far away from the city where they did work, a metro area they did work. Well, there's a follow-on economic effect that is not being discussed. And when we've had higher and higher and higher costs of living and housing costs, as we've been in this quote-unquote knowledge economy and these big metro areas have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger with larger and larger populations. And the ultimate cost of housing is based on the land that it sits underneath. And as that density's increased in these metro areas, the cost of living, the cost of housing has gone up and up. So the effect of people deciding they can live somewhere else far from a large metro ultimately brings about potentially lower costs of housing obviously in the areas people are going to from where they were from and also lowers some of that demand in these 
major metro areas we have in the country and doesn't necessarily depress housing prices but reduces the climb in those prices as we move forward so i know that so much media coverage is always from a negative perspective because people don't read happy stories they read alarmist headlines and they read alarmist stories they watch alarmist stories nobody's going to be excited watching a story about uh wow isn't this great and i hope that i'm not boring you right now by telling you that the housing thing that has come out of COVID is more complicated than it was presented and that actually can lead to us having more affordable housing in the u.s now one burden for people who've been working completely remotely more and more employers or ordering people back to the office who did not require that and many who have required people to come back to the office are increasing the number of days that people must come back i think it's walt disney just went to four days out of five people have to be in the office uh, financial companies tend to be three days out of five now and that's become really hard for people who didn't just go to let's say Let's say somebody worked in the New York financial district and they've gone somewhere upstate or they've gone somewhere in Pennsylvania or whatever. For them now, they have three ultra long commuting days a week. That's really hard. If somebody had decided, hey, you know, this is a great time in my life to move to Idaho and they moved to Idaho and their job was in New York, then they face the problem. They've got to either give up that job or they have to move back to New York. That's just the kind of thing covid was so disruptive in so many ways and created all these new possibilities but a lot of companies are run by older bosses and they are of that era that the whole idea of seeing somebody virtually you know on a screen doesn't cut it and they want people right there in front of them where they can see them in their office and that's why you're seeing this uh, i guess we could call it a counter-revolution of these older bosses requiring people to come back in person i think that's gonna generate some clark stinks the way i just described that well probably so but i think it is an age thing i think that you know companies that are run by younger people completely see hey this works for us but i think when you have bosses that are more in my age range i don't know i also think it depends on your industry and how things work like can it work with people being remote all the time and are you missing you know i think even for for younger workers too you might be missing something not being in the office and having that contact with other people you work with so i agree with some of that but i think it's much broader now is this a good time for us to announce that all our employees have to come back five days a week in person no it's not no it's not no we're not doing that just kidding all right we'll go to some questions now this is from wesley in indiana my employer recently started offering a new benefit called a lifestyle spending account with five hundred dollars in the account I'm not familiar with this benefit, and I was wondering if you could explain what this is and the best way to utilize it. So this is something that's considered to be a win-win kind of thing. It's often referred to as an LSA to, to differentiate from an FSA, a flexible spending account. A flexible spending account is a tax-free account to pay for eligible medical expenses or dependent care expenses. 
and it's a use it or lose it thing and you have to figure out the beginning of the year how much money to put in and all that an lsa is an invention that is a taxable thing for you the money that it costs for whatever the employer provides on the list of eligible lsa activities if you take advantage of one of them then that is reported as taxable income to you but it's like a, a raise in your paycheck and what employers are trying to do with these lsas is reduce absenteeism and improve your health and reduce their health costs and in turn by offering you free gym memberships free classes you know exercise classes pilates yogurt yoga yoga all those things and so they can be a long list of things that are designed to improve your health and well-being the employer makes it an additional benefit but the difference between most fringe benefits and this is this is kind of like an invention it is just recognized as like it's a bonus in your paycheck that you pay tax on and if you don't choose to do those things, you don't get taxed on it? Right, right. It's only if you take advantage of the additional benefits and they pay for that membership to the gym or whatever the activity is that the LSA that the employer has says this, these are eligible expenses and will pay up to this amount of money. If you say, yeah, I'm going to take that money, you pay tax on it, which is still a lot cheaper than you having to use your paycheck dollars to pay for it it is an additional sum in your paycheck just like i said like a little bonus gary in california says would you mind sharing your thoughts on purchasing rental car coverage while traveling abroad during a recent trip to france that required a rental car my partner and i struggled with purchasing the all-inclusive rental coverage my california car insurance did not cover rentals outside the u.s our trip insurance did offer some coverage, but not at the level I was comfortable with. For reference, the car rental through Costco Travel was $1,000, and the full coverage was an additional $600. $600. We are thankful Whew. to purchase the full coverage due to the many dents received during our adventures. But curious about your thoughts on coverage outside the U.S. Side note, the Costco outside of Paris was amazing. We hope you are able to experience it someday on your travels if you haven't already been. Okay, so when I go to a Costco outside the United States, my family thinks I'm out of my mind, and they don't go. Um, but I have been to Costco in other countries. Have you been to the Paris one? I have not been to the Paris one. And so uh, I'll just have to add that to my list of something to do. And they are really different. I mean, it's the same cost savings you have from having things just in a concrete warehouse with steel. But... They are all different, but your membership works at all Costco's around the world. Anyway, going back to your question about the semi-pseudo fake insurance that is sold at rental car counters, what you do is you check with your own automobile insurer first before you go and see if they cover you for temporary use of a rental car in whatever country you're renting a car from. Depending on your auto insurance, they may or may not cover foreign rentals they may or may not cover the country you're going to then the second thing is you may well have coverage with a credit card that you have and so if you have both of those in a foreign country you're good to go if you don't have the coverage from your auto insurer but you do have coverage from a credit card for the damage of the vehicle 
you would still need liability coverage, potentially either from a third party you'd buy for that trip, which would be cheaper, or from the car rental company itself. As an example, in Europe, if you rent from Auto Europe, a lot of their rental rates that are really good come with coverage levels that come with the rate without you having to pay extra at the rental car counter. And do you know that for the first time I can ever remember, I just had to buy collision damage waiver on a vehicle? Oh, really? Yeah. My wife and I rented a moving truck, a 16-footer. We had had a storage unit that we emptied out. And I know you said, Krista, we should have hired people to do it, but Lane and I did the move ourselves. And I called my insurer, which is USAA, and they said, you're not covered for the truck. And then none of the credit cards I had covered me. And I was covered by USAA for liability, but not for damage to the truck. And so I had to buy the collision damage waiver. How much was it for a day for the collision damage waiver? 50? 40 bucks. How's your back feel after that move? Back's fine. My neck's a little sore. Dwayne in Colorado says, thanks for what you do, Clark. My wife hates it when I say, according to Clark, by the way, (laughs) you brought up the recent positive change in 529 plans. What are your thoughts on maxing out the amount to convert to a kid's Roth, $35,000, with the intention of converting it if we could afford to pay out of pocket for college? My wife and I both max out our HSA, Roth, and 401k and contribute some to a 457b. That is absolutely, Dwayne, a brilliant idea, and it's what a lot of people who are serious savers are going to do. Before people say, oh, well, Dwayne makes a zillion dollars that he can save all that money. You are a government employee, I know from the 457. Government employees, state and local level, don't make huge paychecks. You just are max savers. So doing up to 35000 in the 529 plan, and that needs to be your earnings included as well, and then using the new tax law provision that allows you to move that money steadily into your kid's Roth IRA is fantastic. It is a ridiculously wonderful benefit because you get all through your child's formative years, you get tax-free growth in the 529. You then move the money tax-free step-by-step up to a cumulative amount over the years, 35000 into the kid's Roth IRA that continues to go tax-free, grows tax-free, and then is spent tax-free in retirement. You look at what a few thousand dollars put in a preschooler's name in a 529, what that's going to be worth in 60-plus years will blow your mind. But it has to be open for 15 years before 15 you years. So the idea is that you open... The 529 plan, when you have a young kid, you build money in it through the years, they decide not to go to college, or they scholarship out, or you have other resources you pay for college, then that money ultimately can transfer tax-free into the Roth IRA. There's only a million rules with it. I talked about some of those on another podcast. It's pretty complicated, but a great, great tax deal for the taxpayer. Unbelievable. So uh, speaking of ways to grow money, so many questions lately 
with kind of people suffering whiplash with us having earned no money on savings for the last 10 years. Suddenly, there's real money to be earned on savings. Where do CDs fit in that picture going forward? We're going to talk about that. And what's a CD ladder? So a lot of people are suddenly looking at ads online and they're seeing these rates on CDs, which we haven't seen in a long, long time. And the rates on savings accounts have gone up, up, and up. And right now, if you put a CD with an online bank, you look for the best ones out there, gosh, you can get uh, maybe four and three quarters percent on a one-year CD. And that's good money right now. If you look at a five-year CD, you can't get that high. You'll get four and a half. Now, let me tell you where this is weird, because the CD ladder, which I've had a number of people saying, please explain again the CD ladder. The idea of the CD ladder is you take the pile of money you can put into CDs, and you put it into five different CDs, a one-year, a two-year, a three-year, a four-year, and a five-year. And then every year, when one of them is up for renewal, you put it back into a five-year. So the one-year, one year from now, becomes a new five-year Two years from now, the two-year CD becomes a new five-year. The idea is that you have access to 20% of the money you put in a CD every year. And historically, the longer term a CD you buy, the higher the rate. But right now, it's reversed. Why is it that a one-year CD is paying a higher interest rate than a five-year CD? Because... The marketplace is saying inflation has been bad, ugly, but is getting under control. You may not feel it in your own life, but I can tell you because part of our reaction to inflation is based on what we've experienced, not what's happening now or looking forward. The marketplace says inflation is going down. Let me give you an example. CD for rich people and big institutions, the 10-year U.S. Treasury. What's it worth right now? Well, it's paying 3.6% approximately, and that's a 10-year obligation. So you got CDs paying 4.5% for five years out, and the equivalent of CDs for rich people looking 10 years out is paying 3.6%. That's what's known as inverted yield. So people are saying, The cost of living is going to be less and less as we move through the next 10 years. So money you're saving for the immediate term, you get a higher interest rate than you do for a longer term or for the longest term. So the smart money right now with CDs goes five year, not one year. If there's money, if you are a conservative saver or a portion of your money you like to have in savings, buy a five-year now at these 4.5% ranges that are generally available. Uh, You can look at bankrate.com as an example of a place you look. There are others as well that will show you the best rates for different terms on CDs and what FDIC-insured or NCUA-insured institutions have those rates. And so this is a time you go long on savings rates. Now, let's say, and all these things are guesses, because even though the smart money says the the inflation curve 
the inflationary cycle is breaking and long term we're going to have lower and lower inflation which in turn leads to less and less that people will accept for their money meaning that people who are putting money aside longer think how weird it is you're agreeing to tie up your money a longer time and you're getting less interest than if you tie it up a shorter time so if you're somebody who says hey there's been too much gone on too many curveballs and all that still use a version of a CD ladder. Put money in one-year CDs, because remember, you'll earn more in a one-year CD than you will in the five-year. You could put money in a three-year CD. You could put money in a five-year CD. Instead of doing like the five steps of a ladder, do one, three, and five and divide the money out. Know that when you go to buy a new CD a year from now, not invest, because CDs are not investing, they're savings. When, you, when that one year is up, be prepared to earn less than today's numbers. The odds very heavily favor that interest rates that you will earn when you re-up that CD in a year will be lower. That's why money that you're comfortable tying up for five years, tie it up for five years. But again, if you don't want to bet 100% that direction, do a mix. One, three, and five years. Krista? This is from Stacy in Michigan. There's a bill called the Bipartisan Credit Card Competition Act. On the face of it, it seems consumer-friendly, but there's pushback from the Consumer Credit Card Protection Coalition as being against consumers and the government trying to tax our cash back from credit cards. What are Clark's thoughts on this bill, and it's, is it consumer-friendly? Okay, so first of all, if you look at the lobbyists for small businesses, they're all over this. They really, really, really want this change. Here's what's going on. The Visa MasterCard cartel have fees that merchants have to pay that are the highest in the world. Nobody's even close to us. And so this bill, if it became, and again, whatever a bill says, that's not what becomes law. But the bill as originally written and there will be a lots of amendments, and who knows, as powerful as the banks are, I'm very doubtful that this will even become law at some point in any form. But the purpose of this is to create an opportunity for a small business to shop for their merchant clearing for credit cards so that our rates will go to world standards. Because it's not at all unusual for a business in the United States to have credit card processing fees be their third largest expense in their business and can be the difference between making a profit or not. So who knows who's operating behind these AstroTurf campaigns? Probably behind the curtain you'll find Visa and MasterCard funding all these disinformation campaigns. You'll find the big banks probably that have the big credit card portfolios and merchant operations funding these AstroTurf campaigns, trying to stop a reduction in the current fees that merchants are stuck with in the United States by opening up competition. So what would be the effects? Ultimately, if we went to a system like everybody else in the world uses, the cost of a merchant taking credit cards would collapse. And that would be an enormous benefit to the merchant. Those of us who benefit from reward cards, we would see the rewards decline dramatically. 
and this thing where I can go around and use a 2% cash back card, that'll be over. The airline cards with the massive amounts of bonuses, that will be over because the reality is all of that is funded by the massive fees that retailers and restaurants and all others that take credit cards are having to pay. They are subsidizing us and our rewards. The net effect of something like this is that retailers and restaurants and all the rest of their costs go down, which ultimately, I know this is weird, but in capitalism, ultimately that flows back to us as consumers. You think that the business just pockets that money? That's not the way the free market operates. So right now, credit card processing is not free market. This would make it free market, and it would have a lot of unintended consequences like, oh, my precious rewards would go in the toilet. Well, most of them. Deb in Georgia says, when negotiating for a car, would you get a better deal if you finance or offer to pay cash? Should you even say? Okay, so Deb, if the dealer knows up front you're paying cash, they're not going to give you as good a deal on a car because they make a fortune on writing those loans. And I gave data recently how much more expensive a vehicle loan is at the dealer versus especially versus a credit union. And what I was shocked about, the newest data, the benefit of doing a credit union loan versus going to your bank for an auto is the largest gap it's ever been. And so you're paying a massive amount more for that vehicle loan arranged at a car dealer versus doing it on your own, whether at a bank or especially at a credit union. So the dealer makes huge money on writing that loan. If you tell them up front, oh, I'm a cash buyer, they're like, okay, we're going to make two cents on this person. Uh, We're not going to give them a good offer on selling them a vehicle. So you never, ever, ever discuss whether you're going to have a trade-in, how you're going to finance, anything like that, till you have a deal on the price for the vehicle. And Emily in North Carolina says, I have a healthy 12-year-old dog. She has been covered by pet insurance since 2014. In 2014, the premium was $30 a month. In March, her premiums are being raised from $143 to $215 a month. Given this huge increase in cost, I'm considering canceling the policy. I would do anything for my dog, including paying for ongoing treatments if a serious illness were to arise. The problem is, I have no idea what the worst case scenario could cost. $10,000, $20,000, $100,000? Is canceling the policy the right thing to do here, or am I acting too impulsively? You're not acting too impulsively, Emily, but this is a hard one. So when you buy pet insurance... The premiums, they're almost like annual renewable term life insurance. Every year, as the prospects of more and more expensive medical care for your 12-year-old dog, um, every year the medical risk goes up to the insurer. So the premiums go up. Think about what you said to me, 30 bucks a month going to 215 a month, and in addition, The coverages may be more limited what the policy will pay based on the age of your dog. So what I recommend is go to your vet. If you've got a good relationship with your veterinarian, you can talk with him or her about the policy 
that you have, their experience on the coverages you get with it, and they may even recommend a different one for your 12-year-old and the breed involved because insurers also mistreat you in premiums based on the breed. And that's how you decide because you're talking about spending $2,500 a year for this coverage. And if something went really medically wrong with your dog, what coverage are they actually going to provide? It may be that you're, you're buying false peace of mind. And then when the reality hits, you don't have something that's useful. So I think you rely on the veterinarian and the veterinarian's experience with the different policies and companies to decide whether you maintain a policy going forward or that $2,500 each year you put into a savings account for medical bills for your 12-year-old dog. And I wish long and healthy life to your 12-year-old. And I want to tell you, I truly appreciate you tuning in today to our podcast and being a part of our team. You know, my thing is knowledge is power and we all help each other in every way we can provide information to you that you can trust, I hope gives you the confidence to move forward with your life with more control and more money in your wallet as you do move forward. And when I say part of our team, what do I mean? We have so many different ways where we all interact with each other with all the various things we offer under Team Clark, and you help each other as well. Krista, what are some of the ways that people are helping each other right now? In our community at community.clark.com, in our Facebook groups, um, you can look up Clark Howard on Facebook. We've got Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and the YouTube channel. You can see lots of clips and videos as well from Clark in addition to the podcast um, that can be very helpful to you. And then, of course, Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com as a whole. We're trying to help you in our Consumer Action Center. Of course, Team Clark Howard answering your questions Monday through Friday. And you can find their phone number and their hours at Clark.com slash CAC for Consumer Action Center. Consumer Action Center has been with us 30 years. And uh, it is a wonderful opportunity for you to get free one-on-one advice and guidance. And so everything we do is here to be of service to you. And I hope you found today's podcast to be of service to you. Have a great one.